0: Listening to First Church Charlotte. Mark chapter number 12, and I will begin reading at verse number one. The reason why I want you to remain seated is because we are going to uh, move through the first uh, several scriptures here together. This is the parable of the wicked vine dressers, is how the commentators organize it. Let me get us all in context. This is the week of the Lord's Passion. This is the last days of his ministry. Uh, On Sunday, was the triumphal entry into the city and the first visit to the temple. on That was Sunday. On Monday, he curses the fig tree back at the temple. He makes a scene over the t- money, the, the tables of money. Says uh, this house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Uh, that was on Monday. On Tuesday, walking back into the city, they see the fig tree. They get the lesson. Jesus gives them the lesson of the fig tree. And uh, there at the uh, temple, the authority of Jesus is questioned. At at the end of chapter number 11. We are still on Tuesday. Remember, Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to rise from the dead on Sunday. So we are progressing through the week. We are later in the day on Tuesday. And there is an uh, intentional, organized effort by the leaders of the Jewish nation to injure trap, snare, uh, if necessary, murder this man, Jesus Christ, because of their their feeling that he is a threat to them. And so Jesus speaks to these people who are trying to do these things to him. Uh, He speaks to them in a parable. And we understand, looking back, that he is speaking about the house of Israel and how Jesus came to his own, his own received him not, And to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. So we are at chapter number 12, verse number 1. Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. And he says, a man planted a vineyard and he built a hedge around about the vineyard. This is the right way to do it. You protect the vineyard. the the grapes and the vines. Then he dug a place for the wine vat and he built a tower. This is all appropriate, the necessary capital investment for a successful vineyard. He leased it to vine dressers and he went to a far country. Now at vintage time, which probably would have been after four years of growth of these, these vines, he sends a servant to the wine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard of the vine dressers, but they took his servant. These vine dressers, these individuals who had leased this uh, this vineyard, and they, rather than paying a rightful due to the lord of the vineyard they take the servant and they beat him and they send him away empty-handed the lord of the vineyard sends another servant and uh, they threw stones at him they wounded him in the head and they sent him away shamefully treated And again, the Lord, he sends another servant, and they kill the third servant, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they're going to respect, they're going to respect my son, but those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? How will he come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others? Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And these Jews, these leaders, Scribes, Pharisees, they sought to lay hands on him. They would have taken him and tried to kill him right there. The traditional manner would have been to attempt to stone him. But they feared the multitude because the people there had their hearts with Jesus. Their heart and their affection was with Jesus, and they feared the multitude, and they knew Jesus had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Then they we're still talking about they, these leaders, these scribes, these Sadducees, these Sanhedrin council members, Pharisees. They sent to him some of the Pharisees, and then they sent some of the Herodians. I'll explain that in just a moment. And they sought to trap him. I want you to see this scene, understand this picture, and we're going to talk for a little while about this this moment, this teaching moment in the scripture. Now, um, we all of us know that the children of Israel were God's covenant people. Can I have an amen? Amen. They were God's covenant people. How had this happened? It had happened through a right relationship that Abraham had with Yahweh. It was a right relationship. He had believed, and because of his belief, God had given him a covering for his sin. Abraham was not a perfect man. By some calculations, Abraham was not even a good man. I'm sure uh, Hagar would have an opinion about that. But because of his faith, the Lord imputed... That's a theological word. The Lord imputed to him his own righteousness and Abraham stood as righteous. How had he become righteous? Did he stop sinning? We'll read his story. He was very much prone to all the errors of the flesh. We do not look down our nose at him. We are all of us prone to the errors of the flesh. Can I have some agreement? He was representative of the human condition in type and an example. And although he still makes errors, he lies to Pharaoh, and says his wife is his sister instead of his wife. And then he... I won't get into the story for time's sake. But he continues making errors, but God washes those errors away, how does Abraham get access to a righteousness that is not his? Through faith. Now, this is all an example of a day of grace to come. Grace does not begin in the New Testament. It is perfected through the work of Jesus Christ and brought into fullness in the New Testament. Grace is even shown to us in the Old Testament. And so you see a covering in Abraham's life. Abraham's not perfect, yet he's forgiven. I am not perfect, but I am forgiven. That is not an excuse for me to continue in sins, but it is a realization and an acceptance that whether or not I have sinned today, I have within my heart and life a tendency toward error, and I have the nature that if is not replaced with a godly nature, which doesn't just happen once, it's not just, it is a continual process of spiritual renewal. Paul talks about that a lot. If that does not continue in my life, I will revert back to a way of the flesh. Okay, so Abraham believes the Lord. God gives him spiritual credit. And he, so to speak, he imputes righteousness to him. And he becomes the covenant holder of grace. Now, there's a lot of beautiful examples in here. I love preaching about Abraham. And so Abraham... Through his life is given a, a prayer. He is given prophecy and he is asked to live a certain way. How does he live? The first thing he does is he leaves his place of comfort and he pursues a godly place. He looks for a city whose builder and maker is God. The city does not exist. This is a spiritual truth, but Abraham needs to look for it. The city will not exist until Christ returns in his glory and there is a new heaven and a new earth, but Abraham still needs to pursue God. You need to pursue God. I need to pursue God. Why are we still pilgrims and strangers? Because I must pursue God. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I have a nice car. It gives me none of a lasting happiness. It's just a nice car. I have a nice house. It does not make me happy. It'll all perish. I enjoy it. There's only one thing that can make give me true happiness. That's the presence of God in my life. I must pursue the presence of God. You see this example in Abraham? So, Abraham becomes a covenant holder, and he is given a promise, and through that promise, he is given not Abraham's purpose, but God's purpose. You've got to see that or you won't understand Mark chapter number 12. Abraham's given a godly purpose. That purpose is to be ambassadors and priests to the whole world. And through that ministry, that spiritual introduction, uh, through this nation, uh, all the nations of the world are blessed. Okay, so he's not, Abraham, you are not the purpose of God. You are a part of the purpose of God. It's not about you and yours. It is about God using you and yours and including you and yours in a purpose that is arcing above everything else in the life. Okay, so now this is the issue. So the children of Israel, they receive, the in, they receive the inheritance of Abraham's covenant. Sometimes they do good. Sometimes they do bad. Just like all of you. Sometimes they're prayed through. Sometimes they're not so prayed through. Just like all of you. Sometimes they're ready to jump up and down and say victory in Jesus and other times they're, they need to find an altar and say wash me. <laughs> cleanse me, forgive me, they're like us, they're human, they're not all bad, they're not all good, they're human, they're just like us. However, uh, they develop in response to a law that is given to them through Moses, they developed a way of being, they develop a religious way of being, they develop a religious culture. And it is in this era that we arrive at a day where the people who love the law the most are the ones who are going to crucify the giver of the law. Don't rush past that. I have a confession to make. Uh, probably the most consistent biblical interest that I have had and I don't mean that to sound bad. I'm just trying to be honest with you is this issue of how did the Jews miss the ministry of Jesus Christ? How did they 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 missed the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a scary thing because they were quite devout. Uh, they loved the law. They were zealous. You cannot doubt their zeal. They were ab- almost absurdly zealous. And they, they missed the ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, it almost as though in the preparation of an altar of sacrifice, in the preparation of the innocent Lamb of God, and in a preparation of a... Uh, executioner, Uh, he decided to use his own priesthood. (laughs) It's almost as though the people who should have known the most were the ones who were the most willing to kill Jesus. Now this haunts me, and I always think about the scripture of Jesus's warning to even his disciples when he talks about it the last day. There's going to be people who stand before him, and they say, "Um, Lord, did we not Passed out demons in your name? Uh, did, 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 okay, so I, I, I always bring this out because I think it's crucial to understanding the scripture. Um, it's easy to fool people. We can't see your heart. Yes, that's easy to fool people. We can't see your heart. It's a lot harder to fool the devil. Um, if you fool the devil, you are pretty close to the real thing because he's been examining the hearts of humanity since the beginning, okay? Uh, remember the story in the Sons of Scephus, the Sons of Scephus, the, 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 the I believe the story is in the book of Acts, and uh, this guy comes up to him and he says, I'm in Jesus' name, blah, 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 and the demons are like, hmm. Now, Paul we know, and Jesus we know. But don't be jumping up in my face. I don't even know who you are. Okay, here's the guy who has the name of Jesus. Okay, so it's easy to fool people. Why? We can't see the heart. We can't see the heart. Um, uh, it's hard to fool the devil. But there's going to be people at the last day who are so close to the real thing that even the devil's like, man, those guys have got it. They cast out demons in his name. But when they meet the Lord, the Lord says, I never knew you. He does not say you didn't obey me. He uses the word knew. You want to understand that word? That word goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam knew Eve. There is a closeness, a spiritual intimacy, a spiritual sharing. You knew my power. You knew my law. You knew everything but the main thing. You did not know me. Therefore, there is no spiritual life in the conjoining because we never were joined together. Now, that's what happens here in Mark chapter number 12. These zealous people, they're zealous. They're more zealous than you and I are. If you read their history, they are admirable people in many, many ways. They are obsessed with getting things right. Some of them are bad people. Some of them are good people. There are not really easy definitions of good people versus bad people. There's just people. Some of us are good, some of the time, and some of us are bad, some of the time. None of us are good all the time, and only a few of you guys are bad all the time. (laughs) That's right. But enough about the youth ministry. So uh, just kidding, guys. I love you. Y'all are awesome. So um, you get the idea. Um, They're people. Some of them have murder in their heart. Some of them are hypocrites. Some of them have outward appearance, but no inward devotion. They're not all that way. Some of them uh, come to Jesus at night. Some of them, member of the Sanhedrin council, Joseph of Arimathea, gives Jesus a tomb to be buried in. Uh, y- you get the idea. They're just people, and yet they miss it, miss it, miss it, miss it. They miss it so bad, it's terrifying. They miss it so bad that they become the enemies of God. They miss it so bad that they have everything. They know the law, but they don't know Jesus. They know the rules. They don't know Jesus. They know all the worship sequence of the tap- the temple. They don't know Jesus. They can quote history. History, they don't know Jesus. Okay, so something really, really terrifying is going on here. So Uh, Jesus gives us the example of this vineyard. And there's a big investment. He doesn't just like throw something together. It's a big investment. Plants the the vines. Does a uh, hedge around it. uh, Puts a tower there. The tower both has multiple purposes. The tower is used for protection uh, of the uh, area. And it's also used for the crushing of the grapes. It's a complete capital investment. This is a wholly formed business. We just need the crop to come to fruition. And so he leases it out and he goes to a faraway Country. You guys know the story. And uh, then when he tries to collect, the people who have taken it turn it to their own needs. They want it to serve themselves. They don't want it to serve the master. You must see this, because this is always a temptation of our human hearts, where we use even the religious parts of our life to serve ourselves, not to serve the purposes of God. This is a big deal. This is what the whole story of the children of Israel missing out on God's purpose is shown right here. And we cannot look down our ecclesiastical nose at them and act like we would never do that. There were a lot of sincere people, there was a lot of good people, they were zealous people. They would risk it all, but they turned it into a self celebration rather than a God celebration. Somehow they erred in this way. And so the Lord sends prophets to them. I want to quickly give you a a survey, so to speak, of how the prophets that were killed famously uh, by the house of Israel. Uh, Isaiah was, when you read in the scripture about sawn asunder, they're talking about Isaiah. Isaiah was sawn asunder in a log by Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Uh, Joel uh, was uh, he 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 died. Uh, one one report we have we're going way back in time here. One report was that he uh, he died in peace, but there's another report, uh, another gr- group of literature that says that uh, he was smote on the head by Ahaziah, uh, 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 the son of Amaziah, and uh, he, he having been concussed, he fell into a, uh, a, a coma, and they took him home, and he died two days later. Uh, this may have been what Jesus was allu- alluding to. or know what I said? May. This may have been what Jesus was alluded to when he told in the passage we read about they wounded him in the head. He may have been referring to Joel. Uh, Amos, uh, the priest of Bethel, tortured him and killed uh, him. Uh, Micah, Micah was slain by Joram, the son of Ahab. Uh, Nahum was uh, put to death, uh, and he, uh, let's see, Nahum uh, was, he prophesied of the Ninevites, and uh, he was put to death uh I'm sorry, no. Nahum was not. uh, They tried to kill him, and when he prophesied concerning the Babylonians and mercy to Nineveh, but uh, he was able to get away. He also prophesied that the Messiah himself would be slain, and the veil of the temple would be rent, and that the Holy Spirit would depart from uh, the temple. Uh, They tried to kill him. Uh, Habakkuk uh, was... Uh, he prophesied of the Messiah, and he, uh, they stoned him in Jerusalem. Uh, There is Jeremiah. Jeremiah did not die in the destruction of of Israel by the uh, Babylonians. Uh, He actually left uh, for Egypt with other Jews, and in Egypt, he was stoned by the Jews when he uh, rebuked them for worshiping Egyptian gods. This is, uh, some of this is from Jewish history, and uh, uh, the light gives you the idea. Ezekiel, Ezekiel uh, was slow, was killed in the land of the, the, the Chaldeans when he uh, rebuked them for worshiping idols. Uh, Zachariah uh, was slain between the steps and the altar by uh, Joash the king and the king. Took the blood of Zechariah and sprinkled it upon the the, the the horns of the altar, and from that day God forsook the temple, and he uh, no more uh, the shekinah was no more seen there. That is how it is remembered, and so uh, I've given you kind of a quick survey of some of the prophets that have had been slain. God is to Israel, and He gave them messianic prophecies. The the most of uh, messianic prophets prophecies we have were from Isaiah. And he, of course, was one of the prophets that was killed. The second most messianic prophets... Uh, this isn't in my notes, forgive me. This is just from memory. The second most messianic prophets uh, prophecies we have is from Zephaniah. Uh, and he also was killed. Both of the prophets who had the most... Did I say Zephaniah? It may have been Zechariah. Forgive me. Uh, The most Messianic prophets were both killed by those who heard those prophecies. Um, And interestingly, uh, why were these prophets killed? The prophets had a very unique role in the house of Israel. They came with a role, uh, a message that was very similar. And it went went like this. I think the most important was their prophecy of the Messiah to come. And any Christian would feel that way because Christ is the center of it all. Can I have an amen? Uh, They also prophesied a lot about social justice. The strong were oppressing the weak. They they, they prophesy about this a lot. I'm going to try to do this justice in just a moment. Uh, They also prophesy about a religion of the heart. Uh, Not a religion of just uh, outward observances, but a religion of the heart. A A religion where people are forced to really figure out how they are going to serve God and why they are doing something. One of the errors that Israel has fallen into, we know through the scribes and the elders, is they have developed a religion that is not worship, but is virtue signaling, whereby they show others how good they are. It's not a religion of worship. So those are three really big themes in the prophets. I want to talk about this social justice one because it's a difficult one for us. Um, As a church with limited resources. We can't fix the world's problems in terms of of equity in terms of injustice, uh, we really don't have the money to uh, do many of the social justice things that we as a church and as individuals support and believe in. We choose to work through missionaries and we choose, because of our limited resources, we choose to primarily focus on the spiritual health of the places where we send the gospel. We do not think that there that's all that needs to happen. We are very much for justice. Can I have an amen? We are very much for human rights. Can I have an amen? We are very much for people having healthy lives, but because we don't have that much money to send, we send primarily support to the spiritual health of the people, but we also believe in support all of these other social justice areas. Why would the prophets of God... Have a message of social justice, now, let me try to do justice to this i 've thought a lot about it uh, it 's a difficult subject, and so I, I want to be clear that i 'm giving my own weighing and wrestling with it. All societies have a conservative element, and all societies have what we think of politically as a liberal element. Uh, all societies need both of them. Why? Because they function to solve different issues. The conservatives believe in a, a hierarchy of authority and they believe in the right order of society and they believe that hierarchy and that or, order has deep value and you cannot simply tear it down without tragic consequences. That is a classic conservative in, uh, stance of importance uh, the liberal and also side is I'm not doing American politics right now you guys know I don't do American politics I'm doing political history right now so the liberal order is always taking the side of the oppressed, Member against the authority and the power of the people who currently have uh, the hierarchy. So, over here, you have an oppressed people, and the liberal side is always supporting the needs of the oppressed. No society, including American society, is just. The only justice that the world will ever know is when Jesus Christ returns. Can I have some agreement in the house? All societies struggle between the control of social dominant structures and the needs and rights of the oppressed. Whether it is through the history of a nation, there will be in all societies people who currently are the benefactories, the Benefitors of the social hierarchy, and they have power, and they're always tempted to use that power. And so, when the policeman calls, pulls them over, they don't get a ticket. Why? Because they were at the dinner with the mayor the night before. Do you see all societies? are tempted to abuse the hierarchies of order and power. And all societies have within them people who are currently not having their needs, their interests, and their values represented. This is a dynamic tension. Societies go back and forth between it. If you don't understand that, you haven't spending much time reading political history, this is the story of political history. Both have value. E <laughs> In the past, the church has sometimes been on the side of a hierarchy, a social hierarchy, and the church at other times has been on the side of the oppressed. In the history of, and this is a very dangerous subject, I'm probably going to regret even bringing it up, but I think it's the perfect example. Um, In the history of slavery uh, in the West, you will find Christians over here who are trying to use the church to justify Christians. just justify slavery. And you will find Christians over here who are the driving force behind emancipation. Do you see what happens? Now, this, if we did not have any recourse for the oppressed to have their voices heard, then society becomes stuck in an endless injustice that can only be fixed in blood. So if you, the next time you go to hate somebody on the other side of the political aisle, remind yourself, if you will not hear them, it will end in blood. We must find an agreeable place where we can meet. That's not my opinion. That's history. Okay. And so we, most of us tend to be as believers, we tend to be social conservatives because in our society, there's so, much of, uh, there's so much excess and immorality. We tend to be social conservatives, but we must not forget in many situations, Christianity has been on the side of the oppressed. Right. That is very, very important. And as a Christian, you need to be very proud of that. You need to be proud that Christianity has not just stood with the oppressor. That's what the Karl Marx and Engels, their criticism of the church was, was that Christianity is always on the side of the oppressor. That is a lie. Study some history. The church has often been on the side of the oppressed. So in the house of Israel, I've got to wrap this up. I'm sorry I'm not even following my notes. I'm just uh, talking here. But this is a lot of important things, and I won't get to all of them tonight. In the house of Israel, the society has grown spiritually Stuck and rigid, and the children of Israel are being oppressed by a spiritual order that has lost its spiritual purpose. And so the prophets come again and again and say, I don't care how pretty you look at the tabernacle. You need to care about the orphans. You need to care about the widows. But they do not hear. They are stuck. The leadership, the ministry, which in historic Israel includes both civil and spiritual, they have decided that they are the owners of God, do you see? It is our vineyard. We don't have to worry about God. purpose. It is our kingdom. And when God sends a prophet they say just kill him. We don't care. This was given to us. Do you see? Are you understanding now? And even when the Son himself, Jesus Christ, comes, they decide we will kill him and we will keep it all for us. Now, look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Real quick. The ministry of Jesus Christ, he always sides with the oppressed against the oppressor. Bring him a lady caught in adultery. What's he going to do? He's going to say, uh, where are your accusers? And then he's going to say, neither do I condemn thee. I want to say really quickly in closing, musicians, you can come. I want to say in closing, we are the benefactors of a great spiritual heritage. But we must be very, very careful and very, very humble that we never, by intent or accident, become spiritual bullies. Can never allow ourselves to justify. Well, bless God, we're the church. No, you're God's church. That's not the same thing as your church. Do you see? We humble ourselves. And we remind ourselves God has a work that is beyond our own perception. And we humble ourselves and we say, yes, I want to do it right at the temple. And yes, I want to obey the law. And yes, I want to get it right. But I also want to remind myself I'm not good because I'm what I do. I'm good through God's mercy and grace given to me. That's why one of the most important things, I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not giving you doctrine. I think the most important thing a Christian can learn to do is whenever you perceive anybody in your life who is feeling shame because of an unorganized life or an embarrassing past, you should immediately humble yourself to them. And the way you do it is like this. Oh, I want you to know I could Be right where you are so easy. Every silly thing you think you might have done, I promise you, either I've done it or I've done something worse. What am I doing? I'm humble. I refuse to be a spiritual bully. I refuse to present myself with my organized life and my submissive wife. Yeah, right. I refuse to present myself with my organized household and my well-dressed children. I didn't deserve this. This is God's goodness in my life. I refuse to be a spiritual bully. And as a church, the only way God gets glory for your spiritual excellence is if you push away your credit And say, no, I didn't didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve the car I drive. I don't deserve the house I live in. I don't deserve the wife I have. I don't deserve the parents God gave me. I'm a mess. In my flesh, I am of all men most miserable. Honey, if Paul can say it, you need to humble yourself and learn how to say it. I'm not any better than you. I refuse to be a spiritual bully. Because what you see every time these so-called righteous Pharisees, scribes, what wasn't all Pharisees. We pick on the Pharisees a lot, but it was also Sadducees and scribes and, and, and the Sanhedrin council members, and you get the idea. Every time they bring something to Jesus, every time, there is always some bullying element to it. I've only been. I haven't exposed to a lot of spiritual bullies, obvious ones. I was, I, I was raised in a very uh, different environment from that. As an evangelist, I, I I saw some of that. I want to be loud and clear to everybody here today. Whatever mistake you think you have ever made, but by the grace of God, there I go with you. I'm not any better. But I want to say with Jesus, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Because if there's one thing, and I'm going to end with this, if there's one thing that leaps out of the comparison Paul makes in Galatians chapter number five, that's where the fruit of the Spirit are listed in contrast to the works of the flesh. When you read of the fruit of the Spirit, the one thing that leaps out of that list to you Kindness. The kind. The most modern word we could use to describe it. Of the whole list that leaps out at us. The most modern word that I think at least. What if you went to a church that actually got the the fruit of the spirit 100% right? Love. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control. Do you know what a church like that would feel like? It'd feel like this. Those people are so kind. They're just they're just kind people. They're just they're just kind. God, let us be a church like that. Let me be a preacher like that, Lord God. Let me win with your love, not win with some effort of the flesh, some vanity of the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's all stand. Would you reach out and take your neighbor's hand or perhaps put a hand on their shoulder, whatever works for you. Let's pray as a church here today. Would you pray the Lord's touch to that person beside you? Lord, we don't know what our neighbors face. We don't know the dilemmas that they they, they deal with, God, but we we pray. We ask your anointing to flow upon them. We ask your protection to flow upon them. Lord, we need you. We need you. Would you put a gentleness in our spirit, O oh God? Would you put a long suffering kindness in our spirit, O oh God? Even when we're with people and they're, they're feeling embarrassment or shame, Lord, help us to be the first one to say, Look, I, I could be, oh, I could be in a worse situation than you. It's just by the grace of God that I've been able to avoid all the errors of my flesh because, Lord, we don't ever want to be a spiritual bully. We don't ever want anyone to feel the condemnation of us. We want them to feel the conviction of the Spirit. And the difference between the two is the hope that comes with your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you clap your hands to the Lord and praise right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I love this song. I once was lost, but now I'm found. A hopeless case. That's me right there. Something about grace. (laughs) If not for grace. Amazing grace. How sweet. Lead us. Lead us right there. I once was lost, but now I'm found, a hopeless case. I wasn't a spiritual ace, except for God's grace. God bless you. If you need to go, you can be dismissed. We love you. We're going to have a baptism here in just a moment. We're excited about that. God bless you all. Remember, Friday night, all church prayer, all church prayer. Please make an effort to be here Friday night. God bless you. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive. Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., and Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.